truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, the 392nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Now, I have to start off by fact-checking myself. I got fact-checked by a friend yesterday. My friend is a bit of a wildlife enthusiast and is into conservation and He texted me after hearing yesterday's show and he was like, that was very funny, but there are no tigers in Africa. And it turns out, of course, he's right. And I was just kind of making it up as I went along. And uh, so I misgeographied the tiger. And for that, I feel extremely speciesist. And I would just like to apologize to any tigers who may have been listening to my show, I did not mean to do that. And please don't consider it an act of anti-Asian hate because it was just a simple mistake. But I do want to talk a little bit about what I call the fact guy, because I think when I talk about that, sometimes people might be confused about what I'm saying. I'm certainly not saying that facts are not important. If you didn't hear the show yesterday, I was giving an example of what it would be like to be on safari and walk away from the camp on my own and see a lion, not a tiger because tigers aren't in Africa, but to see a lion and see that lion bare his teeth at me and I take off running back to camp and I say, hey, there's a lion out there and that lion looks kind of dangerous, like they might present a little threat to our camp. And rather than someone believing that I saw a lion and at least discussing it, showing some concern that, you know, we might be in this lion's territory could be very dangerous. They instead just decide to make sure that I definitely saw a lion and they want to get all the facts before they'll believe me. So they ask if I got any of the lion's long flowing mane. And I say, no, it was a female lion. And they say, well, did you get any of its teeth? And I say, no, that's crazy. But there's still a lion. And the time that you are expending on these irrelevant issues is time we could be deciding what to do about this whole lion threat. 
And so I say, why were you assuming the lion's gender? Why were you assuming that the lion had to be male? Female lions are scary too. And they say, yeah, but I'm not convinced. And I say, well, I saw six or seven, you know, antelope carcasses just scattered around the area. So something must have really taken those down, you know? And I think it was that lion. And they're like, but how do you know? You can't prove it was that lion. And so they just disregard all the information because you can't prove it to them on whatever terms might actually make them think that this potentially life-threatening choice that's in front of them is something that they might want to take seriously. And this has been something I've been talking about for two years now. Like, humans have been denatured, and this is what I mean. They no longer have a survival instinct. It doesn't operate in the right way. And this fits into the party of false decorum stuff, too. People believe that their survival is a maintenance of a certain social status. And people who have spent their entire lives building the social status that they've attained, they're actually more scared of having to live without that social status than they are of dying. And they do that with some awareness that hundreds of millions of people around the world, maybe billions of people around the world, have been pushed to the brink in terms of their actual ability to survive, their ability to get food. But even the knowledge that the governmental responses around the world have pushed people to this state isn't enough to make them consider whether or not they might be wrong about something they would admit they know very little about. And rather than trying to learn more about the subject they're expressing such certainty about, they try to find little ways that they believe are somehow related to critical facts that you might be wrong about all the things you're saying. Like if you were to argue, for instance, that masks don't work, right? And you're taking into account what the downsides of masking are or that lockdowns don't work. And you're taking into account the downsides of what lockdowns are. They would refer you to this study or that study or this article or that article. They've read the one thing. It gave them a series of reasons why they might still be right. And they accept them all. And they think that there must be so much more where that came from. There must be this huge foundation of factual and intellectual support for the article they read or that article wouldn't be out there in such a prominent outlet like the New York Times or the Washington Post. And then they will ask for your sources. Where are your facts? And you will present them with hundreds of studies and hundreds of articles and all the real world effects of what has actually happened in the real world over the last two years all of those effects negative, no proof of masks or lockdowns working anywhere, providing any benefit in terms of the mitigation of the spread of an aerosolized virus because they convince themselves that none of what you're saying could possibly be fact because that would mean that the people they've listened to are lying. And they don't want to think about that because they think that the people they're listening to are in some way like them, mostly in the way that they are academics and college educated and the people making the excuses are academics and college educated. 
And so they are all privy to a certain type of knowledge that everybody else must not be privy to, even if the people telling them have high quality college educations. And fact guys will memorize and repeat all of the important facts within the central narrative. And they will imagine that those facts, the repetition of those facts, that's so powerful that everyone else should just believe them. And they'll repeat the numbers on TV that they see about cases or hospitalizations or deaths. I actually saw a little clip from MSNBC yesterday. They have their death counter back on the screen, and it's up to like 927,000 COVID deaths. And of course, that's there to make everybody remember that we're in the middle of a very, very deadly pandemic. And when you talk to these people, you hear things like, well, how can that be true? If the disease has killed 927,000 people. But that question is a ridiculous question that doesn't mean anything and it doesn't matter. And I used to talk throughout uh, 2020 about what I called rootedness, right? The importance of breaking all of these things down to smaller and smaller claims about what's actually happening in the world, right? So if somebody claims that there's 927,000 COVID deaths, well, how could that be wrong? That's the question to ask, okay? How could that be wrong? Are there ways that the fact that you're presenting to me right now could be wrong? And what would make it wrong? Well, let's say that the tests aren't accurate. If the tests aren't accurate and the number you're being shown to make you act in a certain way or think a certain thing is based on those tests, then you know right there you have a potentially inaccurate number that's being shown to you. So if you are going to build a case about what should be done based on that number, you should be able to answer the questions about whether or not the number is correct. And it turns out, of course, that that number is not correct. And it's not only the faulty tests that make that number incorrect. It's also faulty recording. It is also the fact that healthcare providers have been encouraged throughout this period to list possible COVID as a COVID case, even if the test confirmation isn't there. But what else could make that death number wrong? Well, that death number could be wrong if the people didn't actually die from COVID. They never made that distinction for 18 months or more. They did not make that distinction. All of us were making that distinction because that distinction is crucial and obvious, but they didn't bother giving it to us. We were conspiracy theorists for a while, and then they started talking about it a couple of months ago. So you don't know if the tests are accurately recording COVID cases, and it turns out, of course, they're not. And you don't know if these deaths are from COVID or with COVID or with a faulty test for COVID. You don't know that at all. And then there are other factors too. For instance, if the COVID protocol is remdesivir and then a ventilator, well, that person is almost surely going to die, but not from COVID, from medical malpractice and from terrible protocols that were put in by people who clearly at this point have proven themselves to not prioritize 
saving human life in any way. And in fact, they're the very same people that encourage a depopulation agenda, you know, for sustainability and inclusiveness. Somehow it's inclusive to have a depopulation agenda. And on the flip side, they can ask you, well, how do you know that the tests are faulty? What would make you wrong? And I could say, well, I could be wrong, except I have the inventor of the PCR test saying that this is not what the PCR tests are for. I have all of the literature about these tests that says they should be run at a much lower cycle threshold than they're being run, which produces 90 plus percent false positives at the level they're doing it. And you could show somebody that and you could say, I could be wrong, but this is what they're saying about what they're doing. And this is what they're saying about how the tests work. So you either got to give up the CDC altogether, or you have to trust what I'm saying that the tests don't work. So it's just pick one, right? But if you want to give up the CDC, by all means, seed that ground and we can proceed further down with this discussion. If you want to say that the CDC is invalid, then wonderful. We can take off every single public health institution as being invalid if we want to travel down that road. More than happy to do that. But if we're not going to travel down that road, then you have to trust the CDC when they say that the tests are being run at a level that they know produces a monumental number of false positives. And of course, they encourage you that if you get a false test to get another test just to be sure and then get another after that. If you get a positive one, though, for sure it's positive. That's exactly wrong, according to the actual literature. And the CDC got rid of the PCR test at the end of last year. So you could show them that, too. And then there's nothing actually beneath that. You know, that is more than enough support to say that these tests don't work or that at the very, very minimum, at the very minimum, you should have some reasonable doubt as to whether or not these tests work. So if you are building a policy based on the belief that these tests do work, you are going to build an insufficient policy. And that's the point. But then you run into a different problem where they say, okay, well, you know, you spent a lot more time on this. Let's just say all that is true. But still, there's 930,000 people dead from COVID. And it's like, what? No, there's, there's not. Because I just told you why that number should not be trusted at all. And if you were to actually try to verify that number after canceling out all of these obvious problems and obvious uncertainties, the number you would find would be much, much, much smaller. And considering flu just straight up disappeared, you might think that those two things are related. But the point I'm making is that this fact guy approach is just a way of eliminating counter arguments. And it is employed by weak minded people who cannot think for themselves and cannot express their individual thoughts with any degree of confidence or assuredness. 
they have already been biased to the mainstream view. The mainstream view is what they consumed first, and that is enforced by the culture around them. Everybody else agrees with the mainstream view. You figure that all of those people are on some level smart like you are. And so you just accept it and you put up this barrier to new information. It doesn't matter how many facts you give a fact guy. A fact guy is always going to want more facts. They want to knock down all contrary viewpoints unless the person is able to give them every single fact in the world about everything. And that would be great if what they were doing was simply being skeptical. But that's not what they're doing because that's not their standard of belief for anything on their side. Right. We could go down through election fraud all day long and show 10 or 20 different methods of election fraud that did happen in every single swing state and honestly, every single state around the country. We could show them all of that. But then they'd still be like, well, why didn't the courts decide in favor of Donald Trump? And then you can actually go through the court cases with them and they still won't get it because they don't care. They don't want to get it. All right. Because they understand that what's on the other side of them being wrong is them being wrong about everything. And that's scary because for them to become someone who is no longer wrong about all that stuff, who is open-minded to the possibilities, understanding that no one actually has possession of all the necessary knowledge at any time, though they actually believe that elite society does possess all that knowledge. Well, then they have to stare in the face the possibility that they will be known as someone who was wrong about all this stuff. And to them, That is scarier than an actual bodily death. And that is what it means to be denatured. And I want to talk a little bit more about this and the mask stuff in a second. But first, today, Jack Posobiec tweeted a quote, or not tweeted, posted on Telegram, a quote from Nietzsche about socialism. And I actually studied Nietzsche, not, it wasn't like a, prime focus of my education, but I had multiple classes on it and took a seminar on Nietzsche's writing. And I know that a lot of people only know Nietzsche from saying God is dead. What he was actually saying was that society was moving to a point where God was no longer relevant in people's lives, that even the sense of God was pointless. And he was talking about the gravitation toward materialism. He was saying that humanity in its current state was evolving out of the need or the usefulness for an understanding of God. And that was a critique on the culture. It wasn't Nietzsche pronouncing that God is just dead, or at least it certainly wasn't only that. And Nietzsche talked extensively about how people were becoming denatured. And that they were moving away from the understanding that we are human animals. We are not simply brains in a jar. We are not an abstraction of consciousness inside this fleshy vessel. And I've talked many times about 
how the collective ideology, how communism, how socialism, fascism, Nazism are all denatured states of being. And we find ourselves a hundred some odd years later in a very similar position in America and around the world that Nietzsche found himself in Austria and Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. And here's what he said about socialism. Socialism in respect to its means. Socialism is the visionary younger brother of an almost decrepit despotism whose heir it wants to be. Thus, its efforts are reactionary in the deepest sense, for it desires a wealth of executive power as only despotism had it. Indeed, it outdoes everything in the past by striving for the downright destruction of the individual, which it sees as an unjustified luxury of nature and which it intends to improve into an expedient organ of the community. Socialism crops up in the vicinity of all excessive displays of power because of its relation to it, like the typical old socialist Plato at the court of the Sicilian tyrant. It desires and in certain circumstances furthers the Caesarian power state of this century, because, as we said, it would like to be its heir. But even this inheritance would not suffice for its purposes. It needs the most submissive subjugation of all citizens to the absolute state, the like of which has never existed. And since it cannot even count any longer on the old religious piety towards the state, having rather always to work automatically to eliminate piety because it works on the elimination of all existing states. It can only hope to exist here and there for short periods of time by means of the most extreme terrorism. Therefore, it secretly prepares for reigns of terror and drives the word justice like a nail into the heads of the semi-educated masses to rob them completely of their reason after this reason has already suffered a great deal from its semi-education, and to give them a good conscience for the evil game they are supposed to play. Socialism can serve as a rather brutal and forceful way to teach the danger of all accumulations of state power, and to that extent instill one with distrust of the state itself. When its rough voice chimes in with the battle cry, as much state as possible, it will at first make the cry noisier than ever, but soon the opposite cry will be heard with strength the greater, as little state as possible. And all of that is rather amazing. It is kind of suspicious, isn't it, that our culture has tried to convince us that Nietzsche is some pseudo-intellectual or that he's dangerous or racist or crazy. He was simply a person in society describing what life was like in early 20th century Austria and Germany as he was watching the world approach World War I. And they kind of do the same thing to Ayn Rand, too. But for a stupid guy, a pseudo-intellectual, he's kind of nailed exactly what socialism is. And this is not simply an observation of, of his time. It is an observation of the cycles of history, and it is a prediction about the future as those cycles come back around again. And it turns out we are back around in that cycle right now. He talks about how socialism denatures the human. It subjects the human to the ever-changing will of the masses after the influence 
of elite culture and semi-education. I was just talking about the fact guys and being a fact guy is a product of a semi-education. Most of our education, most of my education outside of my philosophy education in college was basically training for tests, right? You memorize a whole bunch of things. You learn some processes and math was great about that. I should say I should include math with philosophy. Basically, you know, the classic subjects by which people used to educate themselves along with studying history and studying literature. But now we have 57 genders and someone has to study the extra 55 they made up. But you can't create original independent thinkers by having masses of people simply memorize a series of slogans that you have implanted where facts and ideas are supposed to go. And if you do this over a long enough period of time, it turns out that you really can put people's ability to think independently and have original thoughts to sleep. And that's exactly what we've seen happen. And isn't it also amazing that he points out the use of the word justice as one of the tools? He describes it as a nail being pounded into your skull. That is one of the tools to turn off the individual thought, the independent thought, or even the valuing of the individual conceptually or yourself as an individual. And justice does have that powerful appeal. Everyone has some sense of justice. If they are misinformed about the facts and then someone tells them that what they're doing is done in the cause of justice or fairness or any of the other variations. Well, if you don't go along with that, then you are in opposition to justice and fairness and all of these things that you're supposed to care about, which would make you immoral. It'll make you a bad person. And nobody wants to be called a bad person because if you're a bad person, you get kicked out of the party of false decorum. And before I fully change subjects without a segue, or maybe this is the segue, there's a great piece on uh, brownstone.org. I was actually pulling up the article I'm about to discuss, and I saw this headline, Why Academia is Drawn to Fascism. And it's from February 2nd, 2022. You can find it on Brownstone. You can just go into the articles and just move yourself back to February 2nd. It'll be right there. But I want to talk about this article, and I'll share it with you. This is Vinay Prasad on February 6th, writing for the Brownstone Institute. Mask studies reach a new scientific low point. Masking is a divisive issue. However, at the end of the day, it is a scientific question. Pre-pandemic, community masking was discouraged because the pre-existing evidence was negative. This is why Fauci was critical of it in early March 2020 on 60 Minutes. In the pandemic, masking has become a marker of politics. By the way, I think that that Fauci interview was February 9th, 2020, so he missed by a day. Good liberals wear them and bad conservatives don't. As a scientist stuck in the middle with my colleagues Jay Darrow and I Liu, we performed an umbrella review of this topic. We found very poor quality data, insufficient to support community masking, particularly for years on end. Cloth masks had especially bad data. Data to support masking kids was absolutely absent. Worse, however, was how little we learned during COVID-19. The CDC did not run a single randomized controlled trial. An individual 
randomized controlled trial called Dan Mask was negative, but this trial was powered for a 50% reduction in infection. Some thought that was asking too much. We will return to this. A cluster RCT randomized controlled trial in Bangladesh was negative for cloth masks and very modestly positive for surgical masks. However, further data revealed imbalances in the starting size, likely because the trial failed to achieve concealment, leading more people to sign up in the intervention arm who may be less committed to report positive COVID symptoms, biasing results. And those are the only two studies they refer to about masks, by the way except for the new CDC work where they don't go through peer review, but we'll, we'll get to that. Furthermore, absolute event differences were very small. These facts combined with prior literature suggest that confidence, even in surgical masks is extremely low. Meanwhile, there are no RCTs in kids, a catastrophic research failure. Enter a new study in MMWR, the CDC's pet journal. It is getting widely tweeted and cited, and that is unfortunate. The paper is entirely, irredeemably flawed. Its flaws are so evident that it should not have been published nor promoted. When an issue is deeply polarizing, publishing bad science helps no one. It cannot convince skeptics, proponents don't need convincing, and it deepens mistrust in institutions. Let's consider the paper. And I would pause for a second to just note that the distrust in institutions actually only deepens on the side that knows that the institutions are lying and that this is completely insufficient science. It is ridiculous science. In fact, it is not at all science. And that's why actual scientists aren't convinced by it, which is not to say they won't promote the study for their own selfish ends and to achieve their own narrative goals and their own social goals. But what sort of scientist would ever be convinced by such pitiful data? The paper is a case control test negative study. Basically, anyone in California between February and December 2021 who got a COVID-19 test could be enrolled. People were told if they tested positive or negative. Two days later, someone tried to call COVID positive people. 13.4% of people who tested positive answered the phone. For each positive person, a negative person matched by age and sex who was called was identified. Only 8.9% of people who tested negative answered the phone. We could stop right now. Very few people answered the phone. Moreover, there may be a big difference in who answered the phone. A person sick enough to be tested for COVID who was positive might not be doing so well two days later. Which ones answered? How about those who tested negative? Are these comparable people? Sadly, the researchers continued. Among people who answered the phone, people who said they had not spent time in indoor public settings were discarded. People who had a known COVID-19 contact were discarded. The analysis just compares those who tested positive versus negative if they said they spent time in indoor public settings. It turns out that people who tested positive were different than those who tested negative. 77% of the people who tested positive got tested because of symptoms. 17% who tested negative got tested because of symptoms. More people who tested negative got tested just because. And that's even pretty amazing itself. 17% of the people who tested negative got tested because they had symptoms. Symptoms of what then? Flu? A normal cold? Another coronavirus? Or are the tests just bad? There's no way of knowing in this very important trial. But back to the article. 
Okay, this was opportunity number two to stop the voyage of the Titanic. The reason for testing is very different. Very likely different groups of people are getting tested. People who are sick versus people who are worried or who work at companies that have been bamboozled by color. This is in caps, C-O-L-O-R, to offer asymptomatic testing. Sadly, the paper continued. You know the rest of the story. Among those who tested positive, 6.7% never wore masks in indoor settings and 93.3% wore it sometimes, wore it at least once, and 60% wore it all the time. Among those who tested negative, 3% never wore, 96% wore it at some point, and 69% wore it always. Do the math and people who tested positive were less likely to wear masks than those who tested. The effect size is large, so large that Dan Mask wasn't underpowered after all. Can't have it both ways, can you? The paper did one more analysis in a subset of people, though I cannot find just how many met this inclusion criteria by date. Looking at the type of mask, they end with the now viral figure, no pun intended, and it's the little kind of meme graphic that you saw posted all over social media where they had the line that says no mask and then they show a cloth mask and it says 56% lower odds, surgical mask, 66% lower odds, and the respirator, the the N95 or the KN95 was 83% lower odds. And if you look closely at the graphic right next to where it says cloth mask, there's a little pound sign, a little hashtag. And at the bottom, it says not statistically significant. So off to a great start. And Prasad notes that in the article. What is wrong with this paper? The people who test positive and those who test were seeking testing for totally different reasons. You are comparing sick people to people who wanted to get tested just because or whose employer was swindled by these testing companies. Some people, more who test, were getting tested before a medical procedure. These people may be extremely fastidious pre-procedure. I know I absolutely would not want to get sick before an elective surgery and may even further alter my behavior. In case you don't see how this is a bias, the explanation is that people getting tested who test negative are far more affluent, neurotic, or precautious and will do anything they are told more than the average Joe. They definitely wear masks more. Even if masks did nothing, there would be an association. If you went on Twitter for months and told them carrying a Fauci statue in their pocket would protect them from COVID, you could prove Fauci statues work with this design. Put more technically, the root virtue of test negative strategy comparability is violated and unmeasured confounding is injected. The paper cannot be salvaged. Second, the response rate is poor. I thought that awful daycare study had a low response rate, but this one is lower. When you get a response rate this low, you wonder if you are inserting biases you cannot even imagine. Who are the sick COVID people who answer the phone? Are they the least sick ones? The sick ones don't take calls. Who are the people who answer the phone who test negative? The most anxious ones? The most gullible? I never answer unknown phone calls. Perhaps the ones most likely to carry Fauci statues in their pocket, aka cloth masks. It's self-reported. Mask usage is self-reported. A person who was just told they have COVID-19 might be more likely to assume or believe they must have slipped in terms of mask usage. Self-reporting after results are known is a huge bias. A true believer will convince themselves they didn't wear masks as well as they ought to. Fourth, 
The effect size is implausibly large. In the randomized trial in Bangladesh, the arm that reached significance had an 11% relative risk reduction. That is way smaller than even the vaccines that work so well. In this study, the same mask had 66% lower odds. That is implausibly large and should raise red flags. Five, this is protection to the individual. If masks worked this well, they work this well for the wearer. So you don't need me to mask. Your surgical mask is so massively protective of you that mandating I wear a mask is not needed. This runs counter to the rhetoric in this space. And that is a wonderful point. (laughs) As Wes Pedgen points out, the CDC previously ran a similar, not the same, version of this study, but it did not give the answer they wanted, so crickets. 7. The study only examined people who had spent time in a public space and did not have a known SARS-CoV-2 contact. But the analysis could have altered either of these rules. How many other analyses could the authors have attempted? The potential for multiple analytic plans is possible. Moreover, the authors may have worsened confounding with their design. The types of people tested for a company who did not have known contacts might further select for the most risk-averse or cautious types. The types of people sick, but no one they know was sick, might further select for individuals in communities less concerned with COVID-19 or reluctant to tell others about positive diagnosis. The White House is asking Spotify to censor Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan should ask the CDC to censor MMWR. The truth is the CDC has put out so many papers that are borderline propaganda that they create the space for people to seek alternative information. They have lost trust. But I am more disappointed in smart scientists who share this essay. They are losing their credibility. I am sad to see it. Ultimately, the CDC and NIH failed us. The agencies should have run a half dozen masking cluster RCTs under different conditions and for different ages. We were starving and we needed this loaf of bread. Instead, the CDC published flawed study after flawed study. It didn't even give us crumbs. It gave us a fistful of sand. Starving, we swallowed each grain and begged for more. Medical leaders told us to fill our bowl before it runs out. Science lies on its deathbed. And Brownstone is basically a community of scientists. Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH, that's Masters of Public Health and Medical Doctor, obviously, is a hematologist, oncologist, and associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. But I guess he must also be a conspiracy theorist for noting that the CDC's study where they're claiming that masks actually work is complete nonsense. And he's right. The CDC studies throughout this period on virtually everything have been nonsense. The fact that they don't have to pass through peer review because they're by the CDC is just another element of the corruption that is set in place to fulfill the needs of the central narrative. And as we slowly gain a full societal understanding of the quite obvious fact that masks don't work, we're going to get more pieces like this. And this was from Friday in the Washington Post, and it's kind of just been sitting in my notes for a few days. I was waiting for the right episode to put it in, but there's been so much going on that I didn't feel like taking this slight detour. But the headline is rather amazing to just go and put in front of these communists. Mask mandates didn't make much of a difference anyway. And of course they didn't. They couldn't. 
And everyone knew that from the beginning, except for the people who write for the Washington Post and read the Washington Post and all of the other outlets whose job is only to propagandize the public by repeating the slogans and beckoning for more power and control. States across the U.S. have dropped their mask mandates this week, worrying Americans who think they're still needed and cheering people who are ready to go, quote, back to normal. Both groups need to take a deep breath. Dropping mask mandates isn't the same thing as ignoring COVID-19. And hey, Kami, people wearing masks can't take deep breaths. And that might explain why they never do. And they're always screaming and crazy. Masks have been the most visible part of America's pandemic response, but one of the least consequential. And one might pause to wonder if that is the point. The only point of the mask is to signal that you are following the rules. You are on the side of the rules. You can distinguish between the people like you and the people not like you. You also signal to the rest of the world that something very dangerous is happening. Oh, you don't realize the danger? What are you, stupid? Oh, you do realize the danger and you just don't care about killing other people? Got it. That's what the mask's for. That's the only thing the mask is for. The fact that 500,000 people died during the Omicron surge means it's time to change tactics. And that claim is rather amazing. That's the WHO talking about global deaths, not in the United States, globally, during the Omicron surge, the variant that doesn't actually kill almost anyone. But there were 500,000 deaths. So be very, very scared. And the fact that there were so many deaths in the Omicron surge means we need to change tactics which is a very, very interesting observation from people like this, because the entire time we have been told that we are better safe than sorry, even if there's some doubt as to whether masks work, you have to wear them because better safe than sorry. But apparently better safe than sorry is not the thing anymore because they realize that the masks don't work. So to counter this massive surge in deaths from Omicron, we need to get rid of the better safe than sorry standard for masks. Very consistent, very consistent. But I digress. The fact that 500,000 people died during the Omicron surge means it's time to change tactics and focus on what went wrong that led to so many hospitalizations and deaths. And hey, one might pause to wonder just for a second. How is it that we don't hear tons of stories about people dying from COVID at home. Why doesn't that happen? Why is that so uncommon? Hmm. Mask mandates are predicated on the effectiveness of universal masking in which everyone wears a mask to keep case numbers lower. One of the leaders in proposing universal masking, Monica Gandhi of UCSF, same college as Vinay Prasad, by the way, same university, I apologize has unfairly been accused of being an anti-masker for talking about the limitations of her own strategy and the much greater importance of vaccination campaigns. Totally. But there's no avoiding it. The benefits of universal masking have been difficult to quantify. One controlled study in Bangladesh showed a small but statistically significant benefit among people who consistently used masks. 7.6% got symptomatic infections compared to 8.6 in the control group. 
other studies have been inconclusive. Amazing, isn't it, that the mask-supporting side has that one study that we just heard about, and that's it. Other studies have been inconclusive. That used to be a conspiracy theory, according to Twitter, a few months ago, that there were no studies that show that masks work. There aren't. There's one with an effect so small that they have to argue for its statistical significance, even though there is no other study that they can even put ahead of that study. So the best study they've got, their best proof, they are still arguing that it's still statistically significant. Did it work in real life? No, but that's because of the people that don't wear masks. It only works if everybody does it. And then they send out a little olive branch to the child brains. It is intuitive that a barrier ought to prevent germs from being emitted into the air. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the spread of an aerosolized virus that is smaller than the very tiny microscopic openings in your mask. But if that's true, why isn't there more evidence for the benefits of masking two years into the pandemic? Experts associated with the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota have laid out a more complex analysis. Given the current understanding, current understanding, you got that? The virus changed. That the virus is transmitted in fine aerosol particles, it is likely an infectious dose could easily get through and around loose-fitting cloth or surgical masks. It can also get around improperly worn N95 masks. Many experts, many experts say only N95 respirators or similar devices are truly effective at stopping this virus. And some, such as the SIDRAP head, Michael Osterholm, have been going public, urging people to put less faith in cloth masks and adopt respirators such as N95s. He does not advocate universal N95 use in schools, however, where children are unlikely to be able to wear them consistently or correctly. You know who else can't do that? Adults. Most of the people who were only wearing masks because of the mandate were donning the less effective masks. Kind of tells you a little bit about the mandate, right? And if you put a mandate in that you know won't work because you are too concerned about non-compliance if you make the mandate something that might work, well, then you're really telling us what the point of the mandate is, aren't you? And you're kind of giving up the game about how seriously you take the danger derived from the very deadly pandemic. If you set up rules that I must wear a bandana around my face to go to the grocery store in Los Angeles, then you have already told me that the rules are a joke. Those concerned enough to get an N95 aren't going to stop because it's not required. Yes, they've always been the smartest people and they're going to keep being the smartest people. Future policies should focus on helping people understand their risks and making sure everyone who wants a supply of N95 masks can get one. Except if you do a proper job helping people understand their risks, then we actually won't need any supply of N95 masks because everybody will know that they're not wearing them correctly and that the masks can't really help and that they're not helping and that the disease isn't scary. That's what it means to fully understand the risks 
and the situation. And also, though we don't need to go too far down this road, there is absolutely no reason why taxpayer money should be spent on masks that don't work because some morons are still scared. The most visible change will be in stores, and these are not the most dangerous venues. Much riskier are crowded bars or private gatherings where people who are already removing their masks to eat and shouting to be heard. Except if you're Gavin Newsom, and then it's okay. Also, the Super Bowl is a totally safe zone. Several studies have shown that the louder someone talks, the more particles they expel. Got that? If you want to be safe, you need to make sure that you're not talking to other people and they're not talking to you. Other studies show prolonged exposure to others indoors is much riskier than fleeting exposures. Oh, really? Do studies show that? Gosh, what a revelation. All those factors may explain why the states with mask mandates haven't fared significantly better than the 35 states that didn't impose them during the Omicron wave. And it's funny, isn't it, how they focus on uh, Omicron and they keep talking about the current understanding of the virus? There has been no instance anywhere throughout this entire time that a place that enforces mask mandates does better. Not anywhere, not anywhere. Rhode Island, where I live, shocking, has had a mask mandate since mid-December. Nonetheless, we saw our January surge rise far higher than any other state. And it's not related to Rhode Island's high compliance with the, the vaccines and boosters. It's not that. There's little evidence that mask mandates are the primary reason the pandemic waves eventually fall, though much of the outrage over lifting mandates is based on that assumption. And where would people have come to believe such a silly notion that being unmasked causes new waves of COVID, even though it hasn't happened at all? Is it from the media? And is it from the CDC and Anthony Fauci? Yeah, that's where it's from. And right here, right here is a beauty. Are you ready for it? You have to be ready for it. Think about all of the expertise that you've ever been exposed to throughout your life. All the best experts telling you exactly how everything works. And then you find out in the real world it doesn't. But just recall all of the expertise you've ever consumed. Many experts acknowledge that the rise and fall of waves is a bit of a mystery. As epidemiologist Sam Scarpino explained to me on my podcast, what an education you must have received. And it's a mystery is a great cop out for the expert that is also going to tell you better safe than sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know why the waves come and go. And there's no indication that it's got anything to do with the masks, but better safe than sorry. What is clear is that states with high vaccination rates have fewer hospitalizations and deaths and that booster shots are essential for anyone over the age of 65 or at high risk of severe disease. And that's not clear. That's just what remains of the collapsing central narrative. They are grasping to straws. And when I talk about how the narrative changes, right, and this is why I focus so much on what the narrative is and not what every single minute fact that they're discussing is for that day because the narrative shifts are where the media exposes itself and tells you what they were always wrong about. 
They'll have all these big claims that they are grasping onto. You argue with those claims, you're a conspiracy theorist. Later on, they will just allow those claims to die or they will just put them softly down to bed. They'll put those claims on remdesivir and then a ventilator and they'll just chalk it up as more statistics that they were right. Just consider how many of their major claims have fallen away. They've simply discarded them and acted like they were right the whole time, but now it's time for a change. You guys who were saying that thing the whole time, well, you are still wrong because you're not accepting the fact that the vaccines really do prevent serious illness and death. And it's not just that the virus is way, way weaker. Megan Ranney, an emergency medicine physician and a dean at the Brown University School of Public Health, says most of her hospitalized patients were unvaccinated or they live in multi-generational homes and got the disease from younger family members who skipped the shots. She sees no problem with the idea of lifting mask mandates when the stress on hospitals has eased. Did you see the little trick they pulled in there? The people were either unvaccinated or they're vaccinated, but there's a circumstance in their life that makes them effectively unvaccinated. So the professor at the School of Public Health says that most of the hospitalized patients are unvaccinated, and we'll just go with that. And here's a beautiful quote from this very prominent academic. It's absolutely appropriate to relax mask mandates as cases drop below a threshold. What threshold? Who knows? Particularly in areas with high vaccination and particularly once hospitals are not in crisis mode, she says. She would have liked to see some states wait a bit longer, though, and says lifting mandates in schools should depend on both case counts coming down and vaccination rates among students getting above 85%. Vaccination rates are currently at 23% for kids ages 5 to 11 and 57% for kids 12 to 17. So basically they will never, ever, ever reach 85% unless the global communists get their way and start injecting every little kid. And then again and again and again throughout their entire lives. And by the way, if you haven't seen what project Veritas released last night, you have to see it. You have to see it. And they're dropping another one tonight, but they used a hidden camera to capture a person at the FDA basically confirming all of your worst suspicions about the vaccine and about the process that is delivering this vaccine to the public. He says straight up, they want to vaccinate little kids because it's going to be a once a year thing forever. Also, in regards to this quote from the Brown professor, Saying that it's absolutely appropriate to relax mask mandates as cases drop below a threshold, blah, 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 means that she believes the masks work, right? She's accepting the fact that the masks do something, and that's why it's okay to take them off if not that many people around you have COVID. But the masks don't do anything, and she has to prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, there should at least be some scientific consensus that is backed up by some legitimate scientific data to be able to tell someone else that they have to do something. 
because despite everything these people think about themselves, they actually are not our betters. And there is no structure in this culture that allows them to command our behavior. That's why we have a constitution. That's why we have a bill of rights. It is still, even after all this time, amazing to me how complicit and obedient people are. Adults are obeying other people, even though those people can't tell them why they need to do what they're being told to do. That is just stunning. That is a disgrace to the individual, to any sense of human liberty. It is exactly what Nietzsche was talking about before. In other countries, mask mandates have been imposed and lifted with little or no rancor. Last week, I talked to Michael Bang Peterson, a political scientist and psychologist, oh, probably an expert, who has been directing a research project on pandemic behavior at Aarhus University in Denmark. There, remarkably, all restrictions were lifted this month with little controversy. Yes, how remarkable. I guess Denmark has fewer communists than the United States, and certainly among their media. And would you like an emotional explanation for that? Here you go. Some of that is due to good communication and trust. We can see that a clear majority of the population feel that they are actually getting clear information from the authorities, he said. And of course, we don't have that here. And it's all the anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers fault. And Danish authorities have a realistic goal not minimizing all cases or eliminating the virus, but preventing the healthcare system from breaking down. And isn't that incredible? That was right there all by itself. And only that, that was where we started. That was the justification for two weeks to flatten the curve, two weeks to slow the spread. That was all it was supposed to be for. And that's the only reason it made sense at the beginning. Because there were indications, not realistic ones, not scientifically valid ones, but that was the story, right? At the beginning, that there would be so many people getting this very, very deadly pandemic that the hospitals would be overwhelmed and you would have to triage care and people would die from the lack of care. Except that hasn't happened. Not at all. Not the whole time. The curve was always flat enough to be manageable. And that is even more obvious now after two years, and they still cannot prove any effectiveness of lockdown anywhere in the world. The curve never needed to be flattened, and the curve was not flattened. And there is no better indicator that all of this was a lie than that. But the Danish professor goes on. I think if we look at how it is that the Danish public thinks about coronavirus, well, I guess English isn't your first language, so that's cool. (laughs) I think if we look at how it is that the Danish public thinks about coronavirus, they don't think of it as an individual threat. They think of it as a societal threat, he said. Americans are not selfish. We think about protecting society, too, but we're deeply divided about what our obligations should be. One way we might ease our tensions is by putting the role of mask mandates in perspective. And what is the purpose of this article? Is there a purpose? They are massaging the fragile egos of maskies, and they are trying to dilute the responsibility and guilt 
that falls on them for two years of societal abuse and particularly child abuse, which is still ongoing. So masks don't work, but they might, but they don't, but they might be effective in certain cases, but not really, but you're better safe than sorry. And either way, you know what? You obeyed the rules, you tried your best, and you don't have to feel bad about any of it because you were just doing what you were told. And that makes you a good little boy. You're a good boy. You're a good boy. You're a good boy. And maskies are out there like, yeah, but I got my vaccine too. I'm even gooder than him. Child brains, child brains. It's like they're running around screaming. And rather than the parent actually parenting, the parent just does whatever they have to to get the child to shut the hell up. We have a bit of good news today that will upset their narrative even further. More pieces are going to just crumble and fall away. New Hampshire has passed a measure that will allow doctors in the state to prescribe hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin off-label for the treatment of COVID. And so if they begin to do that and their death numbers from COVID collapse as they have in other places where that's happened, well, I guess you'll have proof positive in the United States, not from scary India and not from those hundreds of studies done by conspiracy theorists that these drugs actually do work to treat COVID and they cure people and they could have been curing people for the entire time. And maybe at that point, all of the fact guys will have enough facts to finally form the only coherent thought about all of this, which is preventing people from receiving the cure to the virus you created is in fact a crime against humanity. And that, of course, is how it's going to be seen in the future. And many of us were saying that all along. And I want to hit just a couple more things before I go today. Today was supposed to be the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, the big war over there that we've all been told by Joe Biden is imminent. But the day is almost over in Ukraine, and there has been no war so far. Joe Biden went out yesterday to make his efforts in preventing the war sound very powerful and very effective. They must have known that war was not going to start today. So now they're going to take credit for there being no war. Kind of amazing how that works, that you can wag the dog. And when the dog actually doesn't wag, you can say that it was your wagging that stopped the dog. But the senators in the Uniparty, some of the senators in the Uniparty, put out a letter, a statement of solidarity with the people of Ukraine. And this was Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, Dick Durbin, John Thune, Jack Reed, Jim Inhofe, Sherrod Brown, Pat Toomey, Robert Menendez, Jim Risch, Mark Warner, and Marco Rubio. They all got together. They chair very important committees or they're the ranking member on all the very important committees. And they want to make sure that everybody knows they stand with Ukraine in the face of not war. 
In this dark hour, we are sending a bipartisan message of solidarity and resolve to the people of Ukraine and an equally clear warning to Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. Oh, so threatening. The people of Ukraine are ice skating right now. Actually, they're probably sleeping right now, but they were ice skating earlier in the day. Should Vladimir Putin further escalate his ongoing assault on Ukraine's sovereignty? Russia must be made to pay a severe price. We are prepared to fully support the immediate imposition of strong, robust and effective sanctions on Russia, as well as tough restrictions and controls on exports to Russia. And we will urge our allies and partners in Europe and around the world to join us. And truthfully, that is amazing. There has been nothing that the people of Ukraine are clamoring for more than those robust and effective sanctions on Russia. In the face of Russian escalation against Ukraine, we will continue to support robust security, economic and humanitarian assistance for the people of Ukraine. The United States and our partners should also move quickly to ensure that the government of Ukraine receives sustained emergency assistance to defend against an illegal Russian invasion. Yes, keep giving them American taxpayer money to help Fix the problem that doesn't really exist, even though you say it does. Make no mistake. The United States Senate stands with the people of Ukraine and our NATO allies and partners most threatened by Russian aggression. Our troops stand ready to reinforce the defenses of our Eastern European allies, and we are prepared to respond decisively to Russian efforts to undermine the security of the United States at home and abroad. They're not doing that, but okay. We also call upon our allies to join us in bolstering NATO's eastern flank. Is Ukraine part of NATO? No, but they don't care. They want to send money and troops over there for some reason. The international order established in the aftermath of World War II has not faced such a grave threat since the Cold War. This order, which protects the sovereignty and territorial integrity of nations, has enabled an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity for the United States and its allies. Unfortunately, Russia is threatening this system, and the United States is prepared to meet this challenge with bipartisan and unified resolve. Honestly, none of these people should ever be elected again. And I have no qualms in saying that people are like, but Marco Rubio's like kind of on our side, right? No, no. Marco Rubio sucks. And finally, the Washington examiner had a couple of really good pieces on black lives matter today and the problems with that organization, besides the fact that it is a communist organization through and through. The first one of these is kind of a bit of a deep dive on the financing. BLM accounting gimmick further delays disclosure of its $60 million bankroll. And I'm not going to go all into that because some of it is mentioned in the second piece, but that's worth taking a look at. The second piece is by Jerry Dunleavy and the same reporter as the first piece, Andrew Kerr, revealed Clinton World Takeover of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter filings reveal prominent Democratic lawyer Mark Elias, that is the election fraud guy, and also the Russiagate Spygate guy. It's crazy, isn't it, that Clinton hack Mark Elias is just neck deep in all of these corrupt issues? 
So Mark Elias and another longtime ally of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton have taken on key roles in the charity amid scrutiny over its leadership and finances. Elias, best known for his funding of British ex-spy Christopher Steele's discredited anti-Trump dossier while he served as Clinton's 2016 campaign general counsel, appears to be representing the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation through his recently formed Elias Law Group. BLM's national organization repeatedly lists the Elias firm as one of its addresses and states in its short year 2020 form 990 that its books were now in the hands of the Elias Law Group. Additionally, Minion Moore, a longtime ally of both Bill and Hillary Clinton, is now listed as part of BLM's board of directors in the charity's filings. It's not clear when BLM's relationships with Elias Law Group and Moore began. Black Lives Matter filed a charitable organization registration statement earlier this month with the New Mexico Attorney General's office, listing addresses for BLM in Arizona and Oakland, California, but says BLM's other addresses is CO, courtesy of, Elias Law Group in Washington, D.C. BLM also filed an annual registration renewal fee report with the California Attorney General this month, with the filing saying multiple times that one of its addresses was CO Elias Law Group. The filing also states BLM's books are in the care of the organization that is located at the address of the Elias Law Group. The latest filings edition of partisan lawyer Mark Elias confirms the group is more political than charitable. Scott Walter, the president of the Capital Research Center, a conservative investigative nonprofit group, told the Washington Examiner. But it also suggests that finally some left wing heavyweights have begun to deal with the embarrassing mess made by a major activist group. The institutional left has failed to pardon the term police. The National Black Lives Matter group pulled off an accounting maneuver that allowed it to delay reporting what it did with its $60 million bankroll from 2020. Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, the charity that serves as the face of the national BLM movement, quietly changed its 12-month accounting cycle to run July through June, giving it until mid-May to report what it did with the millions that flooded into its coffers beginning in the second half of 2020. The new BLM filing with New Mexico also said that Minion Moore is a board member for BLM and BLM's California filing lists her as a board member, too. Hillary Clinton's Onward Together PAC was reportedly incorporated by Elias in April 2017, and Elias is listed as a governor for the Clinton PAC in a business filing for the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs. Moore was listed as the director slash president at Onward Together for the fiscal years of 2017, 2018, and 2019. Clinton posted on Facebook in May 2020 that Onward Together would, quote, partner with Elias's democracy docket to quote, protect Americans' right to vote by mail, end quote. And she posted in June 2020 that her followers should join Onward Together and Mark Elias in the fight for voting rights by signing up for Democracy Docket. Elias wrote on the fifth anniversary of Clinton's loss to Donald Trump that I am still with her. Elias was punished by a federal appeals court panel in March for a deceptive, duplicative Texas court filing, and the judges shot down his effort to wriggle out of the sanctions in January. He benefited from dark money for years with his Democracy Docket Legal Fund, a fiscally sponsored project of the Hopewell Fund, whose board hired a left-wing dark money firm, Arabella Advisors, to manage its fiscal sponsorships. 
And setting up fiscal sponsorships is one of the ways that they exploit loopholes and obscure all of this information from public knowledge. We know that BLM has a fiscal sponsor called Thousand Currents. On the board of Thousand Currents sits Susan Rosenberg. Susan Rosenberg was part of the May 19th communist organization who carried out a bombing of the U.S. Capitol. She was in prison for 16 years until Bill Clinton pardoned her on his final day in office. And now she's a hero, just like Black Lives Matter. And I always make sure to mention all of that because it is important to know that the domestic terrorist organization Black Lives Matter is palling around with domestic terrorists. While at Perkins Coie, Elias represented Joe Biden's presidential campaign and the DNC in 2020 and was the general counsel for now Vice President Kamala Harris's failed presidential bid. He also represented the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and multiple other PACs. Elias has testified before a grand jury set up by special counsel John Durham. And gosh, it's going to be wonderful to hear about how that turns out. Moore is listed as a top leader at the Dewey Square Group consulting firm. She has a long history in Clinton world, including serving as an assistant to President Bill Clinton and as director of White House Political Affairs, where she advised both Bill and Hillary Clinton. She went on to work as the CEO of the Democratic National Committee. The book Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign lays out the key role Moore played in Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, including serving on the Super Six Executive Council of the Clinton campaign with Jake Sullivan, Huma Abedin, John Podesta, Robbie Mook, and Jennifer Palmieri. What an all-star team of criminals that is. Moore is described as a close Hillary confidant in the book, which notes that she helped Clinton plot her 2016 run from the start, and that Clinton made her a, quote, power player within the campaign. The book also says that Moore and Elias set up shop at the campaign's Midtown office. There seems to be very little daylight between the Democratic Party and Black Lives Matter. Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, a conservative legal foundation, told the Washington Examiner, adding, an avowedly Marxist organization is now being represented by the most prominent Democratic Party lawyer in the country. Does that say more about BLM or more about the party operatives that are now seemingly running the show there? The co-founders of Black Lives Matter were self-described Marxists. BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors announced in May she was resigning from the organization amid the scrutiny over her personal real estate purchases. But BLM's new filing with New Mexico identifies Cullors as an executive director for BLM. Cullors has said she and a co-founder are trained Marxists, and her memoir included a foreword written by Communist Party USA vice presidential candidate Angela Davis and an opening epigraph from Asada Shakur, who was convicted of murder in the death of a police officer in New Jersey and was also, by the way, a domestic terrorist. Go ahead and look up Asada Shakur. And so once again, as I mentioned yesterday, This is not a conspiracy theory. It is just an actual conspiracy. And we are beginning to see the map more fully every day that passes. We know these connections exist. That is why people talk about them. And the fact guys out there can doubt it as much as they like. Oh, well, you can't prove that they're doing the bidding of these people. Well, yes, we can. 
You can deny it if you like, and you can think that your denials are somehow justified or substantiated by the facts. But if that's the case, then why is it that every time more information comes out, it always strengthens our case and diminishes yours? How much do you need to hear before your mind will change? But the sad and simple truth is most of these people's minds at this point will not change. And once the entire country understands and accepts all of this, as the entire country will soon do, what becomes of these people who have sat there in their self-righteous denials for this long? And I don't say this simply to describe these people as small-minded or close-minded or stupid, or uncaring, or privileged, though they certainly are all of those things. I say this because these people need to still be able to have a potential for good while they continue to exist in the world. That is what we want, isn't it? I mean, I'm not the only one that wants that. I want these people to wake up, and I want to be able to help them figure out how they can redeem themselves from going so far down this road and how they might travel back and start over again and where in that process they might find a new thirst for life and for knowledge and allow them to regain the survival instinct, which is what allows them to reattach to their own nature as humans. Because if our only purpose is to live as these disembodied consciousnesses just floating around the world until we expire, what is the point of any of it? It's only material at that point. There is no use for one's own life at that point. And the more people we have in our culture who believe that way, the harder all of this is going to be. I sincerely do not want these people to go down that road. And at some point, they're not going to have a choice. And I'm sad to say that point is coming soon. So continue sharing the show. Continue talking to these people as best you can. I know how frustrating it is. But if you care about these people, if you love these people, you have to have these hard conversations. You just do. And if You go away from that conversation feeling like now they hate you or you've disturbed their false sense of security. Well, let that stand as a result of you attempting to love them in an open and honest and proper way where they are getting so little else of it in their lives. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, download the Telegram Messenger app and go to t.me slash I'm your moderator. I'm on Gab, Getter, Rumble, and BitChute at I'm your moderator. You can find my writing at imyourmoderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. 
If you'd like to support the show financially, there is a crypto wallet address in the episode description or go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator, ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you again soon out on the range. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It's high noon! In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!